Hey guys, I hope you've been enjoying our episodes of Creogs Over Coffee. So Nick and I are trying to conduct a survey to figure out exactly who has been listening to the podcast and also to get a sense of what people enjoy from the podcast and what else they're using to learn. We're hoping to use these results to inform us as well as other creators in the new sphere of medical education with podcasts and other forms of media to bring you better resources in the future and hopefully start this revolution in MedEd. So if you'd like to help us out, go ahead and go onto the website for the survey. We'll also post it in the bottom of our episode information as well as on the website. It is https colon forward slash forward slash redcap.link slash Creogs over coffee. Thanks for your help and participation. So Nick, now that I'm starting MFM fellowship, I'm realizing that I'm very quickly losing my GYN knowledge. I know, right? We did this episode on vulvar disease and I was like, oh my God, vulvar disease. I have already lost all of my knowledge of that. Where did you find any information about GYN, Faye? So thankfully, the OBG project has all of their up-to-date information on both OB and GYN information um, that you can access online at any point. Fortunately, I've kept up with that subscription-only OBG first, which allows me to bookmark articles and summaries into my own personal library so I can find those things again that I need for studying for the boards. So if you are a fourth-year resident, you can sign up for one year for OBG first absolutely free, and trust me, it is very, very much worth it. Head on over to our website, creogsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar, and see how you too can get a free year of OBG first as a chief resident. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over, Over Coffee. Coffee. Today, in follow-up of last week's episode, we are going to be talking about second trimester abortions. So Nick, what are our learning objectives for today? So we'll first briefly review the legal context of second trimester abortion in the United States. We kind of glossed over that last episode, but today we'll dive into it a little bit more. Next, we'll outline the three methods of second trimester abortion, which are DNE, induction, and hysterotomy. And then finally, we'll discuss the complication rates of second trimester abortion and prevention and management of the most common complications. So Faye, I'm sure many of us who are listening to the podcast and who are just like in the milieu of women's health understands that second trimester abortion is rife with legal issues and complications. And depending on where you are, that could be really, really different. Yes, definitely. Kind of to give us a little bit of background into second trimester abortions. So in the U.S., 1.2 million abortions occurred in 2008. Of these, only 10% took place after 13 weeks. So really only 10% of abortions are occurring in that second trimester time. And more than half of these occurred between 13 and 15 weeks. Only about 1.3% of abortions are performed at or after 21 weeks of gestation. Now, we know that there are varying state-level statutes that may limit the gestational age for obtaining an abortion or the type of abortion treatment that can be offered. The Guttmacher Institute maintains an overview of abortion laws by state, and you can find a link on our website after to um, see exactly what the laws are in your state. Whether you choose to provide or not, it's very important to understand what these statutes of limitations are so that you are able to better counsel your patients. 
Some highlights uh, from the website is that 43 states have gestational age limits on when abortions can be performed. These range anywhere from 20 weeks to viability, with some statutes currently being challenged in court that could restrict access to as early as 6 to 15 weeks. 21 states prohibit what's called partial birth abortions, which really is a misnomer that we will explain momentarily. Two states have standing bans on standard dilation and evacuation procedures, Mississippi and West Virginia, with an additional nine having some enjoyment on enforcement of a ban on d and And finally, 26 states require a waiting period between counseling and a procedure. 18 states require specific counseling, which may include false or misleading information on things like link between breast cancer and abortion, five states, and again, this is misinformation, Um, the ability of a fetus to feel pain, that's 13 states, and also long-term mental health consequences of abortion, eight states. So now that we've talked about that, Nick, let's talk a little bit about methods of second trimester abortion, and we'll kind of go on from there. Yeah, so from the outset, we mentioned again that there were three primary groups, I guess you'd say, of methods for second trimester abortion. Probably the first one that we'll talk about and is the most common is dilation and evacuation. Kind of just a standard definition is basically the use of medication and or mechanical techniques to dilate the cervix followed by the use of grasping forceps or vacuum suction to remove the fetus. Most commonly, this is achieved with a combination of osmotic dilators um, in combination with mesoprostol for cervical ripening. The success of cervical preparation at 18 weeks gestation and above is also likely improved by the use of mifepristone the night prior to the procedure in combination with osmotic dilators. However, mifepristone may also increase the risk of pregnancy expulsion prior to the procedure, particularly if meso is subsequently used for further dilation. A variant of dilation and evacuation technique is known by a variety of names, such as dilation and extraction or intact DNA, in which further dilation is achieved that allows for removal of an intact fetus except for possible calvarial decompression. In some jurisdictions and publications, this has been mislabeled as partial birth abortion and has been restricted to some degree. In order to avoid consequences associated with laws surrounding the supposed partial birth abortion, some experts advise preoperative fetocidal injection with either potassium chloride or digoxin. Again, this is to prevent that partial birth and that a pre-viable gestation is born and may be alive theoretically at the, the time of delivery. Um, the use of preoperative fetocidal injections may, in theory, help to shorten procedure time, but in clinical trials actually has not been shown to do so to any meaningful bit. So really kind of we do this as a way to cover ourselves to some degree from these partial birth abortion laws um, that really actually take away a procedure that may actually be useful um, for some patients. The next methodology is a medical or induction abortion, um, which is very similar to induction of labor. So this is less cost-effective, though. It takes more time and is more associated with complications um, than dilation and evacuation. 
This is again achieved with similar techniques for cervical ripening to labor induction with the use of mechanical dilators or balloon catheters, mesoprostol, and oxytocin. More efficacious medical management can be achieved with mifepristone administered 24 to 48 hours prior to mesoprostol initiation, um, and osmotic dilators may or may not add benefit to meso in that setting. Preoperative fetocidal injection is also an option in this case, and it doesn't shorten the duration of induction, but may be used if it's preferable to the woman or to the provider in order to avoid that transient fetal survival after expulsion. ACOG lists three primary techniques for medication abortion in the second trimester. Um, we'll have these listed on our website rather than reading out the whole regimens together. Um, but ACOG and the Society for Family Planning note that the MIFI-MISO combination regimen is the most efficacious and so again it is the preferred. The last that we'll talk about is hysterotomy or hysterectomy, um, which I am sort of hesitant to talk about because it's really not indicated frequently, if ever. It's occasionally indicated in the event that other procedures fail or for some reason are contraindicated. Faye, I kind of want to pause here, though, because if we're talking about hysterotomy and uterine scars, I think it's a good point since we just mentioned medication abortion to talk about exactly, you know, can we do induction abortion, for instance, on someone who's had a prior uterine scar? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the obstetricians in us find it very hard to give somebody prostaglandins when they've had a C-section, right? Because mm -hmm. we're trained from day one as an intern, if someone wants to TOLAC um, and they have a uterine scar, you cannot give them prostaglandins to ripen their cervix or else they'll rupture their uterus. And I feel like yep. that's like the big scare that we're all given as interns. However, in the event of a second trimester abortion, a prior cesarean or any type of uterine scar is not an indication for hysterotomy for abortion or for the avoidance of mesoprostol, at least up until about 28 weeks of gestation. Retrospective cohort studies have demonstrated an insignificantly increased risk of uterine rupture for women with one prior cesarean delivery around 0.28% versus rupture risk for unscarred uteri around 0.04%. And there's insufficient data to guide management on women with two or more prior cesarean deliveries. However, this remains well below the established acceptable risk threshold with trial of labor after cesarean at term without mesoprostol use. So remember that data when we talked about TOLAC, that risk of rupture for one prior cesarean delivery is between 0.5 to 0.7%. So again, that risk of uterine rupture for one prior cesarean delivery um, when given mesoprostol for medication abortion prior to 28 weeks gestation is only 0.28%. Limited data suggests in the literature on TOLAC that uterine rupture risk may be elevated with the use of mesoprostol, which may lead to some hesitancy to use it. But according to ACOG and SFP guidelines, it is acceptable to use until about 28 weeks in gestation. The risk of rupture is suspected to increase with mesoprostol use, however, after 28 weeks of gestation. And so these patients, if they do wish to undergo an induction of labor, should be treated exactly like a TOLAC patient who is undergoing induction. All right, Nick. So now that we've talked about all the different methods of second try abortion, let's talk a little bit about complications and other situations. Yeah. So we talked about rupture a bit, um, but complication rates from abortion, even in the second trimester, are overall low. I think one of the statistics that scares people a bit is about mortality. 
with legal induced abortions, mortality is 0.6 per 100,000 um, procedures. The rate is tied to gestational age at the time of abortion, though, um, and at 21 weeks gestation or greater, as you might suspect, the mortality rate for women rises. Um, it's 8.9 per 100,000 procedures. By comparison to that, so again, 8.6 per 100,000 procedures for second trimester abortion um, at 21 weeks gestation or later, the overall maternal mortality rate in the United States is 17.4 deaths per 100,000 live births. Um, so again, pregnancy itself is actually still, from a mortality perspective, riskier than abortion procedures. One complication that we'll quickly talk about here is hemorrhage, and that's one that I think we're commonly going to encounter. Um, Post-abortion hemorrhage blood loss is defined as 500 cc's of blood loss or greater at the time of procedure and or bleeding that requires a clinical response such as transfusion or hospital admission. Rates of transfusion after abortion range from somewhere between 0.1 to 0.7%, again with higher rates seen for medical second trimester abortions. Management of post-abortion hemorrhage should proceed similarly to that after a term vaginal delivery. Again, you want to rule out retained products of conception because that's more common in this scenario. Uterine atony is still a primary cause of hemorrhage in this scenario, so using your uterotonics such as your methogen or your hemabate are still important. Oxytocin can be used, but again, depending on the gestational age, may or may not be as effective. Cervical lacerations, uterine rupture, and abnormal placentation are also rare but important concerns with hemorrhage, particularly in patients at a more advanced gestational age and women with prior cesarean deliveries or uterine scars. Faye, what about infections and contraception after second trimester abortion? So post-abortion infection is an uncommon complication. It occurs in 0.1 to 4% of second trimester abortions. While antibiotics are only indicated per clinical circumstance for medication abortions, antibiotic prophylaxis is indicated prior to DNA. The Society of Family Planning recommends 200 milligrams of doxycycline preoperatively. The ACOG Practice Bulletin also recommends use of 100 milligrams of doxycycline preoperatively and 200 milligrams postoperatively. However, randomized controlled trial methodologies on antibiotic use support solely preoperative antibiotic use as being sufficient. I believe you also asked about post-abortion contraception, Nick. Actually, placement in the forms of IUDs does not increase infection risk. Um, however, rates of expulsion may be higher after abortion than with interval placement. So if women want to get their IUDs placed while they're under anesthesia getting their DNA, that is totally acceptable after the procedure is finished. Reversible contraception of almost any kind um, can be initiated immediately post-abortion, and ovulation can resume as soon as 21 days post-procedure. I will have to put in a little caveat here that diaphragms and cervical caps are not uh, recommended for use as post-abortion contraceptions. However, given that I have never seen a diaphragm or cervical cap in real life, um, I also don't feel like many um, younger providers such as myself or Nick are very comfortable in fitting um, patients for diaphragms or cervical caps anyway. Yeah, that would be a referral. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so I think that brings us to the end of our topic on second trimester abortions. So Nick, why don't we go ahead and sum up? Yeah. So we started this episode quickly summarizing the legal context of second trimester abortion, noting that second trimester abortion is on the more uncommon side of the United States with 
10% of abortions occurring after 13 weeks in the United States and more than half of those occurring between 13 and 15 weeks. There are varying state-level statutes, and you can check out our website for a link to the Guttmacher Institute's overview of abortion laws by state, um, including the highlights regarding the various types of restrictions that are in place by states and the various requirements with respect to waiting periods and counseling. We then talked about methods of second trimester abortion. We talked about the use of dilation and evacuation, which is where we uh, place medication or use mechanical techniques such as osmotic dilators into the cervix to dilate it, and then using grasping forceps afterwards to remove the fetus. We also talked about a variant of this technique called dilation and extraction or intact d and &E. um, This is sometimes labeled as partial birth abortion and may be restricted to some degree in a number of jurisdictions. In order to avoid the consequences associated with this law, some providers do use KCL or digoxin injections preoperatively. This does not help to shorten the procedure time and does add an additional step that may be clinically unnecessary for the patient. We also talked about medical or induced abortions, uh, which include giving medications such as mechanical dilators or balloon catheters, as well as mesoprostol and oxytocin to patients to induce labor. However, we did discuss that this was less cost effective, it can take more time, and also be associated with more complications. We will be posting methods for medical or induced abortion on our website. And and finally, we talked about hysterotomy or hysterectomy, which is a very, very uncommon indicator for second trimester abortion. Prior cesarean or uterine scar is not an indication for hysterotomy for abortion or for the avoidance of mesoprostol, at least up until about 28 weeks of gestation. The risk of uterine rupture in women with one prior cesarean delivery at less than 28 weeks with mesoprostol use is around 0.28%, which is well below the acceptable risk threshold established for trial of labor after cesarean at term, where the risk with one prior cesarean delivery again is 0.5 to 0.7%. Mesoprostol use is acceptable both by ACOG and Society of Family Planning guidance up until again 28 weeks gestation. In terms of complications, we talked about the risk of mortality with legal induced abortions. Overall, this risk is quite low, 0.6 in 100,000 cases, with the rate being tied to gestational age at the time of abortion. This rate does go up at 21 weeks gestation or greater, with the rate of mortality rising to 8.9 out of 100,000 cases. But we should compare this to the mortality rate of live birth in the USA, which is more than twice that, at 17.6 out of 100,000 live births. We also talked about risk of post-abortion hemorrhage, as well as management of post-abortion hemorrhage. Again, this is quite rare, risk of transfusion being 0.1 to 0.7%. And finally, we also talked about risk of post-abortion infection, with the risk being 0.1 to 4% after second trimester abortion. Doxycycline, 200 milligrams preoperatively, should be offered to patients who are getting dilation and evacuation, and antibiotics are not routinely recommended for medication abortions in the second trimester. Post-abortion contraception placement, finally, um, is acceptable and with IUDs does not necessarily increase infection risk, um, but expulsion rates can be higher after abortion than with interval placement. Reversible contraception of almost any kind, with the exception of diaphragms and cervical caps, can be initiated immediately post-abortion. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So 
guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, give us a five-star rating interview. You can find us on social media on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee, and you can find us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. You can support us there. We'll give you a shout out on the show or some swag. You can find notes for this episode and all of our previous episodes on our website, www.creagsovercoffee.com. If you have a question for us, corrections for this show or any other show, or just want to talk to us, send us an email, creagsovercoffee at gmail.com.